Howdy folks, this is Scott Parker and you're listening to another episode of Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast for April of 2022 and we are back in your ears once again and this time we have a very special guest, a man whose Woodstock story is not as well known as some other people who were at Woodstock, but who nonetheless played a very, very important role in the festival. Today we are talking with Mick Valenti, who was the drummer for the band The Quarry, who were essentially the house band of the Free Stage at Woodstock. The Free Stage is a stage that not all that much is known about, and so I think you'll be interested to hear the goings-on away from the main stage at Woodstock. It's a lot of fun, and throughout the episode we've peppered this with music from Mick's various solo projects, and we will talk more about those in a little bit. So we hope you enjoy it. This is part one of our two-part conversation with Mick Valenti talking The Quarry, The Free Stage, and Woodstock right here on Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast. Dream Flowing. I'm Jack Lokensky along with Johnny Hudson and Scott Parker. And today we are blessed to interview Mick Valenti. Mick Valenti is was the drummer of quarry quarry played woodstock but they played on the second stage and they were kind of the house band playing for the woodstock ventures folks who were setting up the stage and did a bunch of other things and we're very much looking forward to listening to and interviewing mick valenti Yay. and yeah, right. Thank you. And if we can get right hey. to it, if we can get right to it, Mick, uh, your brother, who we hope to get on the show as well, Dan, who got me, you know, who found you for me. Your first band was the Victors, correct? When you were like a sophomore in high school or something? Uh, yeah, let me see. Yeah, yeah, that that's about right. Okay. Yeah, so tell us about your first band, the Victors, and how that morphed into Quarry, into the Quarry. Okay, well, even before the Victors, when I when I was like thirteen years old, I had a uh, I had a couple of friends, and we formed a little singing trio with no instruments. Right, we're like thirteen year old kids, and we would rehearse the songs, the hit songs of the day. And uh, we would walk around town and go to different stores like, you know, Newberries and uh, Woolworths, things like that, where, where they had soda fountains. And we would go in there with dressing suits and our, our you know, our Elvis hairdos. And, um, and, and we would go and, and ask uh, the people running the counter, you know, um, if we put on a little show for you, would you give us a free soda or something? And, you know, it's, it's probably impossible to even think of that happening nowadays, but back then everyone was a, a lot more receptive to, to fun things. And they, everyone said, yes. So we did that. And then by the time, um, you know, I was always doing music anyways. I was always doing something. I, it was, inevitable that i was going to be in a band but then yeah when i was uh, in about 10th grade um i started a band called the victors and um i started that early uh in the year uh this is 1964 and, and by october that year we'd already caught like three singles with uh, two songs on each side wow and um uh, uh not too long after that our bass player left he was asked to join a band called the unitones which was a hot band in town and meanwhile while while we were in the victors we used to go 
to you know the boys club dances and stuff like that and there was the 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 greatest band that we all loved it was called the quarry men yes yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever happened to them yeah well i'm gonna tell you about that <laughs> and um so after my buddy uh left the victors there was no more victors and um so he was in the unitones and and one day a third drummer uh, had to go away for two weeks to do um, National Guard service, right? Every every summer, whoever was involved in that had to go away for camp for two weeks. And so they asked me if I would uh, take his place and cover for the two weeks. And I said, sure, you know. And um, it just so happened that one night we were playing at the boys club and the people who ran the quarry men heard about me and I had a reputation of being the best drummer in the city. So they came to see me play and they asked me if I would like to join the quarry men. Wow. And, and I said, yeah, that's great. You know, I was like 15, 16 years old when this happened. And uh, so I, I joined them uh, because they were having problems with their drummer because uh, what they told me was he would, you know, he was uh, an alcoholic, I guess. He he was just showing up to gigs drunk and playing sloppy. So they had to do something. So they they got me in the band and I joined the Quarrymen, which at the time I had no idea, but that was the original name of the Beatles, right? I, yeah. I, I didn't know that, you know, I, I I just asked the. I said, "How did you guys, you know, where'd the name the Quarry Men come from?" Because I just thought it was odd. And the guy, uh, the guitar player, told me. He said, "Well, we had three names picked out, and one day we called uh, on a telephone, called an operator, and asked her which name she liked the best out of the three. And she <laughs> said she liked the Quarry Men. That's a story I got. Whether or not they knew." that that was the old Beatles name and just decided to use it. I have no idea. But anyhow, as the years went by, okay, I replaced the original drummer. Then a little while later, um, let's see, it was uh, the rhythm guitar player left the band. So then I got uh, a guitar player, that was with me and the victors in the band. All right. So it's all like, you know, all like a family affair. Yeah. A, little, a little while after that, their bass player left the band. So then I uh, got my original bass player from the victors who was in the unitones. And I, I asked him, I said, would you like to join the quarry man? And he said, yeah, because that, you know, that was the best band in the County, man. So he quit the Unitones and joined them. And then um, when we were, let's see, it was like 1967, we had an opportunity to, to go to New York City and play. And um, the lead guitar player didn't want to go because he didn't want to leave his girl. So yeah. we sort of like, you know, said, okay, you stay here with your girl. And we got another guy from a different band in town. And that when when that happened, I just said, well, you know, there's none of the original quarry men. So I said, why don't we just change the name to the quarry? And that's, ah. how, that stopped. that's how that started. That's how that happened. So that's how great. did you get into drums? Because you started off saying you were a vocalist and getting songs. Well, you know, like when I was four years old, my father he he used to he had a collection of harmonicas and yeah. i would ask him you know um to if i could play you know fool around with one of his harmonicas and he would let me and i wasn't able to duplicate any of the the great songs on the radio at that time because you know i I'm four years old but i would just end up making up my own tunes and remembering them so that's where i really started was playing oh. harmonica and then um oh you know yeah now that i think of it i remember this when i was in the ninth grade 
I was going to a, a school called St. Joseph's High, and every morning I would walk to the school, and there was a music shop on the corner, yeah. and they they had a set of Rogers green sparkle drums in the window, and I would get there early before school so I could just stand there and stare at the drum set in the window. So I guess, you know, I was fascinated by the drums and, and, uh, you know, after the, the Beatles and all that started, it was like, you know, time to get serious here. That's what I want to do, you know, play music. Yeah. And I loved, you know, so I, I got a, a uh, set of drums, you know, my parents and my older brother uh, chipped in and bought me a set of drums. And that's how it started. That's, it's amazing because I was, I was literally, um, I've been listening to the audiobook of the Mark Lewison biography of the Beatles and Ringo Starr kind of started out exactly the same way. He'd yeah. walk by a drum store and there'd be a drum in the window and he j- it was like one Tom and he just would go by it every day just to look at it. It's very fun. <laughs> wow, really? Yeah, totally same way. Same exact story. Oh, incredible. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Dan, Dan, you know, your brother uh, told me that he felt like you got your music talent and obviously the ambition from your dad because he would play the harmonica or harmonicas as in plural and listen to records. So, Oh yeah. Yeah. We had like all the great, I mean, my mom and dad loved Les Paul and Mary Ford. So they had a huge collection of that. So I was, I, you know, I was raised on, you know, Les Paul, yeah. Did he do anything for music? No, <laughs> you know, he, he, he kind of he disappeared. He was a hermit, a recluse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, wizard of, the Wizard of Wisconsin did nothing. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, right, man. <laughs> Jesus, you know, thank God for that, man. Yep. And yeah. You know what his real, his real name was? What was uh, that? It was Lester Polfus. P O L F U S. Yeah, he lived. Um, he I lived near changed. me. I li- he lived in Mawa, New Jersey, for a long time. Yeah, which is on the New York New Jersey border. Yeah, man. He used to a- play in a small club in New York for the last couple of decades of his life. Yeah, I made it. Yeah, yeah. A Fat Tuesdays. Yeah. Fat Tuesdays, and then the Iridium. The Iridium. Yeah, I made right, him. Right. That guy. He was. When you, yes, talk about, right. when you talk David. about most influential people, he's, he's certainly up there. The electric yeah. guitar, multi-track recording, mm-hmm. the incredible playing, you know, Jesus. A genius. Straight up genius. And, and not to mention all the people who played the, the guitar named after him. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Like that commercial... That commercial is what over 20 years ago, maybe even longer. I can't remember who it was. Les Paul came up and played, and the guy said, What's your name, man? He said, It's on your guitar right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. That, that's one of my favorite commercials ever. <laughs> that that's sums fabulous. it up. That sums it up. That was well yeah, over then... 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, right, Carl Malden carried the American Express card with him. So people knew who he was. Les Paul just carried around his guitar. Yeah. Yeah. There you go, man. (laughs) (laughs) It was something else. Yeah, that's really great, man.
march to war For leaders rotten to the core They give their lives up on the fields of battle While good people, proud and innocent Can't find out how their money's spent By government who herds them all like sheep and cattle get back to the quarry yeah yeah so okay after all that we went to we went to new york city and uh, we were um uh, spotted by uh a man named robert redfield who was a like a big manager yeah uh, down there and he he was like introduced us to frankie valley and and bob crew and stuff like that and he he took over managing the group and, you know, we, he had us playing at the, the Metropole on Broadway, wow. and other, um, the Thunderbird Lounge, which, which was a huge club in New Jersey where we, we like, um, you know, opened for the Dovells and the, the coasters and people like that. Wow. You know, so, but you know, this was, we weren't starstruck. I know I wasn't. It was just matter of fact. This is, you know, this is what we do. And this is what right. these people do, sure. you know. And it was like, you know, we're all in this together. And then eventually he he booked us in um, Hartford, Connecticut. And we were playing clubs around there. And this other guy spotted us. And he wanted to take over management of the group. And he had a... Uh, a very interesting proposition. He he said he could get us on the the Strawberry Alarm Clock show at the Bushnell Theater in Hartford, Connecticut. Wow. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Bushnell Theater, but it's oh yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah, it's pretty famous, man. So yep. So we kind of liked that idea, so we left the other guy and um, joined him, you know, because I mean, we're still pretty young people at this time, so. Yeah. Was that Barry Hollister? No, that was the, that guy's name was John Jane. We opened up for the the Strawberry Alarm Clock show, and that was when they were at their height, you know, with um, incense and peppermints. Yeah, yes. And so we were the first react on the bill, and there was another band after that, and then they came out, but... Uh, we did so well that we got like a standing ovation, so and that was great. And so we just stayed with this guy for a while, and then um, then we went back to Redfield. 
after that was you know it was i don't know probably everybody did that just went from one thing to another wherever the opportunity the better opportunity was right right so then mr redfield he started booking us in a a place in springfield massachusetts called the jolly jester and that was that was run by the mafia and wow. um and it was really cool because they loved us and they were like you know no one touches the freaking band you know what i'm saying man and absolutely yep. not oh that absolutely, was great uh, man no one, absolutely, absolutely not no one touches the band i understand what you're saying uh, yeah, yeah absolutely you know that because you know they loved us and you know the the the, the tough guys would come up and ask uh, we want to hear this song that song we would play it for them uh, and you know they were like buddies of ours and and i can remember you know the orders were if a fight breaks out keep playing the floodlights <laughs> go on and the, the whole place is you know there's a riot on the dance floor but our instructions are just keep playing, man, and we'll <laughs> handle it, right? So, and then one night, I remember they somebody got shot, uh, killed in the back of the club. They found wow. a, a body in the alley. So this was heavy-duty stuff, and it was good to be in, in a band that was loved by these tough guys. So, wow. You're, so you were kind of like Travis Scott at Astroworld. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. We we were like play, <laughs> we were playing like seven nights a week and uh, doing a matinee on Sunday, and you know we'd be there for like six weeks at a time, and they loved us so we would keep going back and and you know now that it sort of reminded me um, somebody mentioned to me and we were talking about it it's like you know what the Beatles did in Hamburg, right? Yeah. You know they. I mean, that's where we, I mean, you, you're playing seven nights a week in, in a tough club and everybody's loving you. You're going to get, you know, unbelievably talented, really good. You're going to get so tight. And after that, it, it just, you know, kept on snowballing. We just get more and more, you know, we played all over New England, all over the East Coast, you know, all the way from uh, Maine to Florida, up and down, you know, and this is pretty good for young kids like 18, yeah. 19 years old. Sure. Yeah. And, um, okay, then at one point, Barry Hollister showed up yeah. at our house. At, well, at uh, Mike Fury's house. That's where we were rehearsing at the time. Yeah. And uh, he he heard about, you know, that we were like the, the hottest band in in the county. And he was looking for a band because he 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 ran. Um, uh, did you ever hear of Ski America? It was like a magazine. Yes. yes. That, yes. that was Barry Hollister. He was the, the guy who was running that. And he was living in McAfee, New Jersey. And there was a the Great Gorge ski area had right. just opened Which up. Later became a Playboy Club and Action Park. <laughs> right man but yeah. we were the, we were the the first band that played great gorge because barry was living right up the hill from great gorge so he was highly involved with the people running great gorge and they needed a, a band for you know uh, for when they opened up the club and he barry was originally from pittsfield so he went come up to pittsfield to to find us and and he offered us the gig and we took it. And um, so we went down there and did that. Wow. And while we were playing there, this was in, um, this was in 68, right? The fall of 68. So we started in December of 68. And um, in the meantime, we're playing, uh, did you ever hear of Dino's and Middleton? Middletown, New York. It was a big, big club, man, and we we I, played there a lot. No, but I that I know Middletown, New York. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. Dino's was the, from what I was told, was the end spot. It was a big, big club, and, and the place oh. was always packed, and they loved us there. And um, all of a sudden, you know, we were just 
playing everywhere, you know, doing playing in New York City and stuff like that. Sure. And uh, one day at, at a band meeting, we, you know, the band had a house in McAfee, New Jersey. And that's okay. where Barry was living. And, you know, and we were just, and it's funny, when we first got down there to play before, before we actually, you know, rented a house, we were staying at a motel and a bar called The Quarry, of all things. <laughs> you know, what a coincidence. You know? yep. It's like, what the, okay, this is, a, that's a good sign, you know. Yeah. So anyhow, we, we had our, we were, had a band meeting at the house, at the band house, and Barry told us, um, you know, like, this was our next assignment is, is there, you know, we're, we're uh, going to be playing at a festival called Woodstock yeah. in a couple of weeks and, you know, okay, great. You know, that's as far as I'm concerned or anybody that's, that's our next assignment. Yeah. And so, you know, we, uh, when the time came, we drove up, load up, loaded up the two uh, band vans left. We had a limousine at that time too. But we left that there at the house. And um, so we get to, we arrived at Woodstock three days before the actual official start of the festival. So you yeah. arrived probably on the 12th, right? Yeah, whatever it was. I'm not sure yeah, of the dates, but you probably 15, 16, know better 17, than I do. Yeah, so we got there like three days before. And there was, you know, there was a... A, a fair number of people already there, the early arrivals and, and all, you know, the stage crew building the stage and everybody getting things ready. And um, they didn't have any entertainment. All they had was, you know, a couple of people had a radio, maybe somebody had a record player. But when they found out there was a an actual band there with equipment, man, that, you know, that was the, the uh, elixir everyone was waiting for. So. They yeah. made a, a makeshift little platform that that the first night there and ran a generator and we played throughout the night and um, it was really great. So the next day they built what was called the free stage yes. in a different location at the bottom of a like a hill. It was they, it was like a natural amphitheater. Right. And, that um, was, that, that's the main that's where the main stage was. At the bottom of the hill of the, of the natural amphitheater, uh -huh. right, and and our location was a, just you know a little ways away, right, and um, and so you know, and as each day got closer to the original festival, more and more people which were showing up, and you know, by the time the festival was roaring, I mean where the free stage was, it was just packed as far as the eye could see. There was so many people there. Uh -huh. And, you know, and, and we were, we were playing like three, four, five shows a day. Wow. You know, constantly playing, man. And all uh, three days or just all six days. Yeah. All six days that just, there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All, all the time we were, it was like, you know, just a permanent thing, the free stage. Right. And, um, and then all of a sudden, like when the festival officially started like the the ken kesey buses rolled in yeah. right with the grateful dead and they they were staying in the free stage area right where we were camped out so uh -huh. we were you know we we made friends with all those people <laughs> and um i remember our manager barry hollister yeah um on one of the days where we just finished the set and he came up and told us he, he was sitting with Jerry Garcia while we were playing. And, and he told us that uh, Garcia told him that we were the, the greatest live band he ever saw. Take oh, what it's worth, you know? Wow. And, and, those, and then, and then he Garcia invited us out. He's there, you know, if you guys are ever out in California, you can stay at, at our, um, compound. Oh, wow. But that's a little ways down the story. I'm going to let yes. that be for now. When but, Jerry uh, Garcia, because Jerry Garcia played the free stage too. Did he play with your band or did he just play solo? Yeah, well, yeah, they, it, as the days went on, you know, like when, when, I mean, we'd be on for a couple hours or more 
And then when we got off the rest, you know, I mean, Joan, Joan Baez played there. Other right. uh, Jerry, the, the Grateful Dead played yep. on there and stuff like that, you know, so everybody would wander in and do a little bit of a thing. I think maybe Sebastian played there, uh, Richie Havens, you know, just sure. stuff like that. And, you know, what's really cool, um, the quarry had the distinction of, of playing the most music at Woodstock. Yeah. Because everyone else was just did their one set on the main stage, and that was it. We were there constantly. And someone pointed out to me, a friend of mine, his name is Lee Everett. He's a professional photographer. He was there at Woodstock. And right. he pointed out, he's there, you know, do you realize that He's talking to me. He said, you realize that you're you're the one person who played the most at Woodstock? Yeah. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, because I used to do a a long drum solo during each set. So when I'm doing a drum solo, the rest of the band is not playing. They're they're taking a break. So, so, you know, I had the honor of playing the most at Woodstock (laughs) for whatever it's worth, man.
you have the honor and distinction of be also being the first band. I mean, really. The oh, yeah, you're right. Band. You're right. Yep. That's right. The first We played yep. first live notes of music at, at what I call the never-ending concert. Woodstock's incredible. What, what, no one had any idea what it was going to become, what it is now. It's like, you know, it's like if you say the word Woodstock, everybody knows what you're talking about all over the world. You say John Wayne, everybody knows who that is. You say the Beatles, nobody says who's that. You know what I'm saying? It's, right. Like, right. it's right. just gotten so huge. Well, that's and one it, of the reasons why we have a podcast about it. I mean, yeah, the three that, of us I, are Woodstock geeks, and we love it, and we do uh, this. That's awesome, man. I, I think this is terrific, you know. I, I'm glad to be a part of uh, what you're doing. And Thank you. We're, we're honored to have you here. Really? So, Thank you, fellas. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Another yeah, we thought like I had. Oh, excuse me? No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, this is, Woodstock has become like so ingrained into the culture of the planet. Think about this. The the Peanuts cartoon strip. Who's Snoopy's best buddy? Yeah. yeah. Woodstock. Woodstock. <laughs> Who was created after the Woodstock Festival? That's right. Yeah. Yes. And this is, as far as we're concerned, the best podcast about the Woodstock Festival. It may also be the only podcast about the Woodstock Festival. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I'm honored to be on the best Woodstock <laughs> podcast ever. Um, my daughter went into uh, Target, the department store down here in uh, Waterbury, and uh, she came out with um, – a, a brand new Woodstock sweatshirt and Woodstock sweatpants. So you know that the lights are in use. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's everywhere, man. Look at, I, I remember I was not too long ago, I was watching an episode of The King of Queens. Yeah. Did you, did you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. we, we know the, the show. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, th well, this really blew my mind in a way because I'm watching the show. It's a, it's a funny show, I mean. And uh, at one point, I think uh, Holly was in, uh, visiting Doug and Carrie, and I don't know how they got on the subject, but I think Arthur said he was at Woodstock. <laughs> and Holly says, oh, my God, really? You were at Woodstock? Oh, my God, I can't believe it. You know, and I'm saying, holy Jesus, this is, you know, it's incredible how, how huge this is. Yeah. Woodstock. Yeah. And and then um like last year there was an, an album came out Woodstock three. Did you ever see that? Yes. Yeah. And that's that's the quarry's equipment on the front of the that album. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and on Woodstock and speaking of staring at drums, on the Woodstock two soundtrack, everybody's staring at your drums. That's yep. right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's amazing that um, yeah that the picture on the Woodstock two album you know there's there's our equipment my drums were were the featured instrument with all the you know the artist names on the drum head yep. but when that picture first came out it came out in Billboard magazine and Barry Hollister got a copy and he showed it to us and it didn't have the artist's name in there it said the Quarry yeah. And we I don't know if you ever saw that. And, and, you know, we said, holy, that's amazing. You know, we thought, that you know, at that time, maybe that's was going to be the official cover. But, you know, when they finally put it out, it had the names of the artists. But if you look up at the top right hand corner, you can see my face yeah. as I was sitting at the kit when the picture was taken. And the 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 two little naked babies there, they were. They're children of um, a guy, the guy Ken Babs is his name. <laughs> oh yeah, those were Ken Babs' kids. Holy yeah. cow! Wow, Ken, Ken Babs, and he Scott he was Ken Babs. Yeah, yep. Oh, go ahead, man. Oh, he's no, the Babs. 
He's Scott Rose. Yeah, we're, we're, Did you know about Ken? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. He's still around. Oh, yeah, he's awesome. What a great guy. He called me, like, last year, and he did an interview with me for a book he's writing about Woodstock. So, and, you know, we, we keep in touch now. It was, but those are who his two kids. And it was, you know, it was amazing because every time – you know, right before we're getting ready to do a, 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 a set, you know, the little kids uh, most of the time would come over and want you want uh, want me to hand them the drumsticks so they could, you know, hit on the drum or bang the cymbal and all that. It was really sweet. So, and that's a really adorable picture. Oh, yes. it's a great it's a great picture. And now that we now that the secret is out. His kids are going to sue Warner Brothers, kind of like the way the Nirvana baby is suing Nirvana. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. That's very. Yeah, I, and I, 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 I was going. I was going to ask you, Mick, if you could, because Jack and I collect Woodstock paraphernalia. I was going to ask you at some point. I I think I mentioned this to Dan, your brother. If you could autograph that for me. Now you've got me. Now I've got to find Ken Babs' kids and get them to autograph. <laughs> the right, man. I, I hey, didn't you better... know those were Babs' kids. I never knew that. Did you know that, Scott? No, never. I, 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 I had no clue. I wondered what happened to those. those There's kids. a very short shot in the movie um, that was taken probably right around the same time of yeah. uh, the kids playing around the drum kit. It's during the John Sebastian um, younger generation. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, up until a couple of days ago, I didn't even know whose drums they were. Yeah. Wow, really? That's amazing. Yeah, was, I always called it, I always said that Quarry was Woodstock's best kept secret. And it's like, yeah. you know, all of a sudden when you think there's nothing more you can find out about Woodstock, Bingo. There's the quarry. Oh, yeah, well, you, I don't know. I think Warner Brothers had something again, and and uh, Michael Wadley had something about against cues because you and Quill, <laughs> everybody forgot. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, man. But it's it's you know it's it is what it is, and you know it never bothered me. And I always thought to myself, well, someday the the truth has to surface, you know. Yeah. Well, here. Here it is. We we get at least ten thousand unique downloads every episode. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, um, I'm glad everyone's interested in Woodstock, and I'm, uh, you know, it's my pleasure to be able to uh, yeah. inform you of some information that you might may or may not have known before. I'm glad oh, to be no, a part of it. We're 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 happy to yeah. for you to share us your knowledge. And then, yeah. like, um, see, when was it? Uh, about 10 years ago, I was uh, interviewed for, I don't know, have you seen the movie Creating Woodstock? Yes. I did. Yeah, we, okay. So They had, um, was it about two and a half years ago for the 50th, they uh -huh. showed it at Bethel Woods with the members of the tech crew. Yeah, yeah, I remember hearing about that, man. So that's cool. So, you know, that um, the, the producer... Mick Richards, you know, this one day I got a phone call and he says, you know, could I speak to Mick Valenti? And I said, yeah, this is me. He said, uh, I'm Mick Richards. I'm a movie producer and director. And I said, I'm calling uh, about the quarry playing at Woodstock. Yeah. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. He said, um, I'd, I'd love to come over and interview you for the for the movie. We're doing a new movie about Woodstock and he's there, you know, he, he just, you know, what he basically told me is there, I want to get the quarry story out there because I, he's there, you know, it's kind of a shame that, you know, you were, you guys did a lot to, you know, make the festival what it is and you never got any credit for it. And I said, well, okay. Uh -oh. sure. Come on. Mike over. Richards is John Morris's nephew. Yeah. Whose nephew? John, John Morris, Morris, the guy who was the MC, if you ever saw the Woodstock movie. One oh, yeah, boy, sure. Boy okay. the first contract album. Uh -huh. Right. 
No rain. No rain. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's no. Gary Melton. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who was a guest on our show? Oh, that's awesome, man. Now, Mick, the guys that played at Quarry, played played with the Quarry at Woodstock, obviously you, Michael Fury, you mentioned him, uh-huh. Dave, Dave Carone, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, and by the way, anything I say, correct me if I'm wrong, and okay. if I'm pronouncing it correctly, is it Dave Velika? Was, that the, was no. it the four of you that played? Yeah, it was me, Mike Fury on lead guitar, yeah. Dave Karen, Karen on rhythm guitar and um, Danny Valika Danny, played Danny. bass. Okay. And Dave, Karen, and I were the main singers in the group. And Danny sang a lot of background, and Fury did a little bit now and then. And at the time, I was the main songwriter for the group. Yeah. Really? Right. And you and you sang lead from the drum kit. Yeah, yeah. I, I I started doing that as soon as I first joined the Quarrymen, because the Quarrymen were known for their musical uh, prowess and uh, especially their their harmony singing. So the original drummer didn't sing. So that was another thing. He he didn't sing, and he was uh, you know would show up. Um, inebriated and not able to play right so you know I was just a, a kid still in high school 
and but I could I had total command of the drum kit, which is what they wanted, and I had an added bonus where I was a, a, a really dynamite singer too. So, and yeah, and you were too young to drink. Excuse me. You were too young to drink legally. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> true. But you know what? Hey, it, it, yeah, I'm, it's funny uh, that you mentioned that because, you know, I'm in high school, like, you know, 15, 16 years old. And I'm playing all these, you know, bars and night spots and I'm able to drink. Uh -huh. Well, I'm there, you know, because you're in the band. Yeah, I'll have a rum and coke. You know. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, I, but I never got drunk. You know, we just drank. Yeah. Very sparsely, man. You know, the, the music was the most important thing to me always. And, um, yeah, you know, but I, I, every now and then, every now and then, you know, you would just mostly I just drank Coca Cola, but every now and then you'd be, yeah. you know, you'd order a drink. Oh. Sure. That, that's up. the smart way to do it unlike in the blues brothers movie where they played bob's country bunker and it's like well he paid you 500 bucks but you guys drank 700 bucks worth of beer so you owe us 200 bucks. <laughs> it's insane man <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, but oh, you're gonna pay us now? Well, uh, you guys owe us two hundred bucks, man. <laughs> you gonna pay us, or you did? You want to go home? <laughs> <laughs> Funny man. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, I love that stuff. So anyhow, so we're while we were playing, um, the, the free stage. At Woodstock, the people um, organizing the Texas International Pop Festival was right. was there, and they spotted us, right? Yeah. So they negotiated with Barry Hollister um, for us to do the same thing in Texas, right? Which was about two weeks after Woodstock. Right. And yep. this was a this was even better in a way as far as our you know accommodations like they you know they paid us some good money to do it they flew us down at their expense and they actually had a, a real stage built a, a big stage you know for for the texas pop, pop festival do you do you mind me talking about this at all? no please no, no you're absolutely. a lot of a lot of our guests yeah because it's all been, connected yeah, are yeah. all connected because Sweetwater played uh, Texas Pop Festival. Um, oh yeah, everybody. Led Zeppelin. That's where I met well, Led Zeppelin. Yeah, that was that uh, was a little band that didn't put that didn't play Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, yeah really, man. And, and he killed their career by not playing Woodstock. You know what? Yeah, I know. Things? What happened to them? Yeah. What happened know. to them after Texas, man? <laughs> Wait, you know, did... Grand Funk Railroad, Johnny Winter. I mean. You know, I met a lot of people at, at both places, but anyhow, so uh, we, we did the free stage down there, and that went over big. We did, you know, radio interviews and stuff like that, uh, and the the festival was in Louisville, but I remember we we did um, radio uh, radio interviews in in uh, you know Dallas and stuff like that, but then. What they did for us, because we were so such a, a hit, they let us perform on the big stage on the last day of the festival. Man, uh, wow, it was great. It was. I mean, we they put us on the main stage, and it was pe people as far as the eye could see in every direction. It, it it went way back into you know the wavy heat lines. You know when, my goodness. And they loved us, man. They wouldn't let us go off. We played for like over three hours, and they just, they <laughs> wow. just, you know, they just kept us playing. So, and after we left, um, after we left uh, the Texas Pop Festival, the Casey buses were there too. Yeah. Right. So, so we hooked up with them, and we drove out to. Um, San Diego with them and and stayed at the Grateful Dead's 
compound where it was like a like a warehouse that had uh, an apartment section, you know, with living quarters on in one part of the building. But the, the main thing was like a, just a big warehouse. And the Grateful Dead were set up on one side and we were set up on the other. And it was just constant music. We would play, they would play. And it was just, you know, real a, a real cool time. I, I, I dubbed it the Dead Quarters, right? <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's just natural, normal, right? Just it's just hanging right there, low hanging fruit, man. This has got to be the Dead Quarters. But <laughs> a really great thing that this is a cool story too. So you know, we're staying there. We stayed with them for about I don't know, two weeks or more. I can't remember how long it was, but at the time <clears throat> they were. Um, Jerry Garcia and Mickey Hart and some other people, they were that was they were first forming the new riders of the Purple Sage. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um Mickey Hart was the drummer. And uh all of a sudden one night he started to get into this trend where he wouldn't show up for rehearsal, so they would ask me to to take his place, you know, while they they're they're working out the writing the songs um uh -huh. for their first album so I, I said yeah great cool you know and so i did that and then the first gig the new writers ever played was at a place called the family dog remember chet helm yeah um, in san francisco yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so and we were on the bill too we were the opening act there was three three bands it was the quarry some other band i don't remember the name and then the new writers came out to do, do their first public appearance. So oh. the place is packed and they're all, they're starting their set and they, they get a little ways into it. And I was, you know, me and the, the quarry guys were standing up there in front of the stage watching. And all of a sudden, this is incredible. All of a sudden, Mickey Hart just disappears. He falls backwards. He fell off his drum thrown he was he was so wigged out on drugs or whatever yeah. right he just passed out so jerry garcia spotted me and you know standing there in front of the stage and he just points at me and he says come on up finish this so i i finished the wow. the set with those guys the, the first time the new writers ever played live in person man it was me that saved the day wow <laughs> wow I mean, you know, you never know really what's cool. going to happen, man. So, yeah, well, that that was a period when um, Mickey Hart was starting to get into heroin, and um, at the beginning oh, of man, yeah, and they they wound up firing temporarily firing him from the Grateful Dead for it, but you know, the first casualty of his his problem with that was was the new writers because he wasn't reliable. You know, he was kind well, of that, that, that confirms exactly what I just said. Yep, that's yeah. exactly. That's awesome, man. Yeah, so that that's, yeah, absolutely perfect. And it's so. funny, now I just had a thought. Hmm. It's like, it's like, you know, uh, this, it sort of reminds me of how I first got into the Quarrymen, right? Yeah. The drummer yeah. was unreliable. And, and then, you know, it was just a good, you know, it just worked out. It was synchronicity. It was just lucky that, you know, like I said, he didn't, he stopped showing up for the, the new writers band rehearsals. So I took over to help them guys out, you know, and, uh, it just worked out. It was perfect that I happened to, you know, we were on the same show and I happened to be standing there when Mickey took a dive and, yep. uh, Jerry just called me up and said, man, help us all. I said, yeah, you got it, pal. Wham. That's amazing. See, that, that first gig, by the way, that they played was August 28th, 1969 at the Family Dog on the Gray Highway in San Francisco. August 28th, 1969? Yep. yep. No kidding. That's, uh, that's cool for, for you to... Oh, about two weeks after Woodstock. Yep. That's what, yeah, right. A couple of weeks after Woodstock is when we did the Texas Festival. And then we, okay. like I said, we hooked up, uh, we drove out um, with the Ken Kesey buses to the to the dead quarters. And that's how, you know, that that one thing led to another.
<laughs> yeah, the dead quarters, man. I mean, it's perfect. I'm surprised no one ever thought of it. But, you know, it, it always takes one person to come up with an idea. So We, we got to talk to uh, Jesse Jarno to uh, rename his podcast. Yes. Yeah, dead Jesse quarters. Jarno is, is a former guest on this podcast who hosts the official Grateful Dead podcast. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, let him know. Tell him about the name, man. The Dead Quarters, man. That's, where, that's, where, that's where it all happened for, you know, for those guys. And, and, you know, that was really, I guess Jerry really meant it when he said, you know, we're the greatest live band he ever saw. And he he was true to his word. You know, they yeah. invited us out there and they let us, you know, have the run of the place. Yeah. But, no. You know, we and were you decent could, people. You could have been... The new drummer for the uh, New Riders of Purple Sage and the Dead. Yeah, I, I, I never thought of it that way. I just figured I was helping a friend out, you know. But. Yeah. Last thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and the youngin's dreams of growing up to ride. The freight train leaving town Never knowing where I was bound No one could change my mind But mama tried One and only rebel child In a family making mild Mama seemed to know what lay in store Despite all my Sunday learning For the bat I kept on turning Till mama couldn't hold me anymore Dear old daddy, rest his soul, left my mom a heavy load. She tried so very hard to fill his shoes. Working hours without rest, wanted me to have the best. She tried so very hard, but I refused. When I turned 21 in prison Doing life without the ball No one could steer me right But mama tried, mama tried, mama tried To raise me better But her pleading agonized And it's only me to blame Cause mama tried And that's our show. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Your hosts were Jack Lekensky, Johnny Hudson, and Scott Parker. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast has a Facebook page where you can catch up on all the latest Woodstock hullabaloo. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast is not affiliated in any way with Woodstock Ventures or any of its individual partners or entities. On behalf of Jack Lekensky and Johnny Hudson, this is Scott Parker saying thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time.
say she's walking away.